sometimes when the gospel touches people in a non-religious environment, something wild can happen. You know, people radically, radically converted on the street, people saying, I will leave everything and follow Jesus. Welcome everybody, Simon Gilbo here with Inspired, and I'm thrilled that this week we've got an old mate called Steve Lee. Welcome, Steve. Hello, Simon. Nice to be with you today, mate. Steve is the founder of Miracle Street. Now, Steve and I go back about a decade. I think you've been on the road 30 plus years, haven't you, Steve? Preaching the gospel, uh, doing street stuff, escapology, crazy escapades in a number of countries, which uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing about. So let's get stuck in. Tell us about your childhood. What, what were you like? Well, a bit of a mix, to be quite honest. Um, I grew up with an alcoholic father, so everything was a little bit chaotic for me growing up. Um, I was a dreamer. I was one of these kids who looked out of the window at school. Um, I always felt that I was born to do something, but didn't know what it was, uh, believed in God, but couldn't work out whether God believed in me or not. So uh, yeah, led me into some interesting situations. I used to light fires quite a lot. I was one of those types of kids. Um, and yeah, I mean, I always believed that something would happen for me down the line, but I was a little bit troubled as a kid, to be quite honest. <laughs> Give us a few sort of, uh, yes, yeah, few vignettes of your early teens or late teens before things really changed. Yeah, well, one of my very early memories. So so what I ended up doing was um, preaching the gospel on the streets. Um, and I often look back at my childhood and I think, I wonder whether the, the signs were there. And I remember this situation when I was about eight. I was in Worthing Town Centre on the south coast of England where I grew up. And, uh, and I stood on a, a dustbin for a bet. Uh, some guy said he would give me two quid if I would uh, shout to the crowd on the street. And there was probably about, I don't know, 500 to 1,000 people on a busy Saturday morning. Brilliant. And I stood on a bin uh, as a kid and I, I talked rubbish. I don't know what, I, what, what it was that I said. But looking back, uh, I, was, I ended up back on that same spot when I was 23 and uh, I first preached the gospel in the open air. So, uh, yeah, there were a few little, few little signs like that in my childhood as what, what I would end up doing. And did you go, you know, did you make horrific decisions or was it just standard rebellious stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wasn't a bad kid. Uh, I was a little bit of a weird kid, I have to say. But um, I, I did a few things. I, you know, I nicked a few things in shops and that sort of stuff. But I wasn't particularly aggressive or violent or anything like that. But I was very lost, I think. Um, probably the relationship with my dad was was very difficult. Um, so I ended up making some difficult choices, I think, around friendships, but uh, it all it all changed for me when God took hold of my life. So, yeah, tell us when that happened and what was the deal there? Well, throughout my teenage years, I was involved in youth clubs, churches. I, I really couldn't work out the whole God thing, uh, but I liked being around Christians because they seemed peaceful. They seemed like people who knew who they were and I didn't know who I was. So that drew me into the church, I would say, more than faith initially. It sounds a strange way round, but I got involved in the church without really believing in God. But uh, everything changed for me around 1920. Um, I was on a, a trip to the Isle of Wight. I met some people that I'd known for a while. 
and I found myself in a in in the mix of a, a worship event. Um, I I was quite used to it in some ways, but something happened. Something happened in that moment where I heard about God in a way that I had never heard God explained before, um, and I just. I made a radical decision, Simon. I, I turned the control of my life over to God. Um, I told him that I would do whatever he wanted me to do and I would be whatever he wanted me to be. And uh, and it was just like a light switched on. And I felt um, that God called me as an evangelist really from day one. I remember taking a walk along the cliff um, by the sea in a very stormy day and I imagined the the message that I knew had landed inside of me, coming out of me and going to the ends of the earth. And I didn't fully understand what it meant at that time, but looking back, it was the moment when God put his hand on my life. And so how did you cut your teeth doing that? Really on the street, um, I looked at the church and I thought, well, really most of the people who go to church already believe it. So I didn't really know what an evangelist was. I then found out what a street evangelist was, and I thought I definitely don't be one. I definitely don't want to be one of them. You know, there was there was a group in Worthing who I think were probably brethren, and I'm sure it was all well intention, but but we were scared stiff of them as kids, and they used to stand and they looked like a firing squad, and they used to shout literally out into. Well, I obviously I did that once, but but it was very judgmental. It was quite intimidating, and I thought I I just can't do that. I can't be one of those types of preachers so i went a different route and i learned how to be a street entertainer i went to places like the edinburgh festival i ended up performing on the edinburgh fringe many years later but i went to covent garden and places like bath which is i know where you know where you're based and where street entertainers operate and i sat on the wall and i watched how these guys worked a crowd and i got into big scale magic tricks on the street and escapes and and I just learned how to draw a crowd and um and I I was pretty successful in doing that but the challenge came when I tried to incorporate the gospel into it um and that was the beginning of what became Miracle Street so what are the, some of the sort of crazy stunts you pulled off on the streets then oh mate <laughs> <laughs> everything i mean i i started i mean i couldn't i was a rubbish magician and I, I i i didn't know how to escape out of anything so i set myself up as a fake escapologist who looked like he could escape but couldn't so i'd get tied up in chains that i couldn't get out of and then i would use that as a visual aid to talk about freedom and then i got a bit better i learned how to get out of straitjacket um and i performed that on the street i i've got a a, a seven foot French guillotine, uh, which is obviously a trick, um, soaring in half boxes, um, water tank escape, all of that stuff uh, we've done on the street. Brilliant. Actually, one of the weirdest weeks of my life, I did a, a one week uh, Christian magicians course and uh, it was, <laughs> there were some really quite unusual people there. And and I couldn't, you know, I saw one of those ones, oh, do I leave after a day? But I, I stuck it out. But actually, the biggest thing that came out of that week for me was that actually, you know, uh, magician 
the, the craft of it is it, it's incredibly skillful isn't it and you can't oh yeah you can do a few duff tricks you know fake thumb or whatever but actually to, to do it well it is a real skill and i ended up totally admiring those slightly odd people um anyway you don't you, you don't seem particularly odd steve but uh what well i've got to say that the duff tricks is probably m m what i'm about i mean i i didn't really like the idea of getting into all the dark arts of magic myself um i'm i i met a few weirdos as well i have to say but uh <laughs> and did you and did you ever get sort of i mean i've done some street stuff and i've been spat at and uh punched and uh you know i mean a whole, a whole load of stuff you know in terms of crowd control that sort of stuff. did you get any really negative responses Oh, all of that, all that, all and more. Yeah, I mean, some guy took a run at me when I was in a straitjacket in Watford. Um, literally, the team had to pull him off me. Um, it was pretty scary. Um, I mean, I, I was fairly confident that I could defend myself if I needed to. Um, but being in a straitjacket with a guy running at you <laughs> was a challenge. Yes. Um, but then what happened is that, I mean, the police were called, actually, and this guy was... Um, very broken i sat down with him afterwards and he apologized to me and basically what had happened is that his wife had been sectioned that morning oh, and uh, and he thought he was going to lose his kids and he saw me in a straight jacket and he he thought i was mocking his wife you know and he obviously was drunk and uh and i i chatted to him um you know, there's been lots of situations like that. I mean, hecklers. I mean, I, I'm I'm up for all that, really. I've never had a problem with, um, you know, people questioning the legitimacy of my birth, so to speak. Um, <laughs> but, but, yeah, I mean, it's there's been some scary moments as well. I mean, I've worked in some of the most volatile um, council estates in, in the UK and in Europe as well. So, um, yeah, when I was younger, uh, I probably was a, a lot bolder and braver in those environments i think you get a bit older and you you know you have kids and stuff <laughs> it's not quite so pleasant but yeah being being criticized and being shouted at has never bothered me too much i have to say mm. you mentioned kids because that's where uh, we overlapped because it was 2015 well we did meet <laughs> probably another eight years before that but uh, it was in 2015 when it kicked off again in burundi and my yeah. kids my kids had to, well, they actually came back not because of the violence, but because my five-year-old uh, Josiah swallowed some popcorn into his lung. And uh, they, so they, they came back to England. I was like with Lizzie at the time, so we cannot leave because we choose faith over fear. And uh, and if we leave, everyone's going to leave out in Burundi in terms of the expat community as, as we're kind of senior seniorish people out there. And, uh, and so the way the Lord manufactured for the family to leave was that Josiah swallowed some popcorn into his lung. <gasps> He's breathing. Wow. He's breathing <gasps> like that. So he needed an emergency bronchoscopy, which he couldn't get in the country. So they left. They came out to England. And what I love is that, you know, thousands of people praying and around the world for us. And on the day of his operation, <laughs> he coughed and out came this popcorn. No and so, uh, and, and you know, even doctors would say that was a miracle. It's ten days on, and it was it was just the way the Lord organised for me to be able to stay out there and experience the coup and just not be sort of freaking out about the family and then back in England. But yeah. Josiah, Zach, Grace, they ended up at school uh, in the same class. You know, literally by the next day, they could have just rang up, rang up this lovely Christian school. Uh, was it called Kings in uh, Fair Oak? And uh, the headmistress uh, was it Heather Bowden said, "Yeah, come in, come in the next day." And they started, and and that's where my Zach hooked up with your 
you were Bobby, Robbie, Robbie, yeah, isn't it? Robbie, Robbie yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was where we, we linked up again. Yeah. Um, now, so, sorry, backtracking a bit. So you, you're you doing this stuff in the streets. Where does the lovely Lorraine come into things? Yeah, so a little bit earlier, really. So I was leading a, an evangelism team in Gerald Coates' church in Cobham in Surrey. Mm-hmm. Um, I was part of Pioneer at the time, uh, which was the network that he led, uh, now led by my friend Billy Kennedy. Um, and I... I was leading this summer team. I was on a year out training program. Um, this would have been 87, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I met Lorraine. She was a runner. She was a 100-meter sprinter. Um, very turns high out, level. Turns out in the end we were at Loughborough University. Overlapping yeah, that's there without, right. Yeah, we, that, we discovered that later yeah, yeah. over at Curry, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Was she England representing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she was in a lot of national um, competitions. Yeah, she was in the three A's the uh, amateur championship um so yeah she knew a lot of people she um she was at loughborough uh, i think with steve backley the javelin thrower mm-hmm. she was best mates with diane modell um so yeah she was in that crop um in the late 80s um but she was on a um i think she was injured and she was i think she'd left just left uni um, and she was on this summer team, and I was leading it because I was on the year-long team, and and we really clicked. But you know what the rules are with a lot of these Christian things. You know, we never dated or anything like that. But she left a note on my windscreen. Uh, it's like something out of a, a Mills and Boone sort of romance <laughs> novel, and it got washed away in the rain. So I I remember this soggy bit of paper, but she'd written this heartfelt message to me, uh, which. You know, she thought I then ignored um, because I didn't reply or I didn't call or whatever. So then fast forward three years, I was had moved to Southampton. She left and got offered a job in industry in Southampton and we met up and we were married in um, eight months, I think. Scared the life out of our parents. And so that was what year? So we were married in uh, 91. And she did she know what she was getting herself into? <laughs> well, I think we were both fairly, you know, passionate in terms of what we wanted to go for. Um, so I think she did, actually. She was involved with me um, on the street and some of the big events that we did outdoors in the early days. Um, but she was um, quite senior in industry. Then she became an interior designer for John Lewis. And then she became a mum. Uh, and she's transitioned through several phases in her own life. She's now leading a parenting training um, organisation. She works with parents and those who work with children. So we've all, uh, you know, we've always been around kind of communication and, um, you know, vision and big projects. So, yeah, I think we're, you know, we're quite similar in that way. It's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, your wife or my wife, you know, they sort of hopefully vaguely know what they're going to get. So when I proposed to my wife, Lizzie, I said, are you ready to be a young widow? You know, she knew she had to be ready. Wow. It was a dangerous country. Yours, England's not a dangerous country, but, uh, you know, you, you, you're going to stand out. You're going to you're going to be exposed to some heavier stuff, aren't you? Has, yeah. has she, so she obviously bought into that. And then the kids come along. Does it look a bit different for when, when kids come into the equation? Yeah, I I think when I became a dad, um, my priorities shifted a little bit. I recognised that, you know, if somebody had a go at me on the street, that uh, my kids were affected by that. It wasn't just me. Um, So I don't think I've lost my 
boldness, but I definitely uh, reshaped what I was doing a, a little bit, I think, when I became a dad. Hi, folks. I hope you're enjoying all these inspiring stories as much as I am. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you give us top quality rating on iTunes so that more people get to hear about it. And if you want to contact me, you can get me on simongilbo.com and the other social media platforms. Now let's get back to the podcast. So you started Miracle Street, and we want to hear about that. And I picture you on a big sort of uh, like a, a massive platform that sort of folds out. Is, was that the focus of it? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I started on the street, as I've said, and then the challenge for me was how do we lift this off the street into communities? How do we create town-wide and city-wide evangelistic uh, events and projects that have the same feel as being entertaining and gathering crowds, that kind of thing. So that took me into mobile stages. So you're right, um, I've had a number of um, vehicles that have been custom made. Uh, The big one is an Arctic uh, truck. It's been all over Europe. Um, And Miracle Street, really, I saw the name in a dream. I, I was wrestling with the idea of how do we draw a crowd, but then engage them in a way that they're already visually connecting with what it might be about. And I saw this banner that said Miracle Street taking the church to the people. And I made that banner and I've still got it. Uh, This was more than 20 years ago now. But Miracle Street then became a charity. It then became the name that went on the side of the trucks and described a lot of the events that I was doing. And now doing stuff a lot online through the lockdown, it's still... Miracle Street, um, although it's not on the street, um, a lot of the Old Testament passages about rebuilding streets and places of dwellings, it was really, for me, all about transformation. It wasn't just about the physical place, the physical street. So, yeah, Miracle Street is the name that I've um, journeyed with now for many years. And that great big stage platform, we think, at one stage we talked about, didn't we, about driving it all the way down to Burundi. Um, yeah. That was a conversation from over a decade ago. Uh, but there was, wasn't there a crazy story about how it came? Didn't you get it from Canada, wasn't it? An, an, was no, it? that was a different one. I mean, I've had loads of trucks. I mean, that was a thing called the bandwagon that uh, actually was first used in Fair Oak, that you talked about earlier on with the school, uh, a church that's got lots of um, people in it that we both know. Um, so, you know, that was four, four Arctic trailers that set up in a square under a canvas roof with tiered seating in three sides that pulled out with a forklift. I imported that from Canada. Uh, That's another amazing story. But the truck that's got the fold-out platform, that uh, was commissioned by a guy called Oliver Raper, who was uh, Reinhardt Bonker's mission director in Africa uh, and had this vision to build a church without walls. And uh, we ended up uh, taking ownership of it after when it was three years old. All right. And go on, give us just a bunch of stories of uh, beautiful, you know, people having encounters and lives transformed. Well, obviously, you know, for any evangelist, there are stories. And, you know, one story that always sticks in my mind, which was a very powerful one, was when we were in Spain and uh, we had the truck down there. We went right across the south coast of Spain and we were in a place called Rota. Uh, which is where there's a big American um, naval base. So it's an unusual town. Uh, It's a small Spanish town, but with a massive American element to it as well. And we'd set the truck up down by the beach 
and and we had a thousand people around it immediately lots of young people we put pop-up goals we ran a six-a-side football tournament and just preached the gospel every night um, from the back of the truck um, from the side of the truck and it was a very hot day and I went and I was staying with a guy um, who was my interpreter and I said to him look I'm boiling hot the air con had packed up we were in a high-rise block um, for the week and I said look I'm going to go down to the supermarket and buy a fan so I went into the supermarket I picked up this fan went to the checkout and I was with uh, Martin, who was uh, uh, translating for me, and this Spanish, old Spanish lady come up behind me. And uh, she looked at the fan, and she was obviously very poor. She looked very poor. And she said to us in Spanish, where did you get the fan? I need the fan. How much was the fan? And I said, 15 um, euros. And, she, and I saw her head drop. And I just felt, go and get the fan, buy, buy the fan. So I went back in and got a second fan. And I gave her the fan and, and and I just gave it to her at the checkout and she 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 hugged me in front of all the customers. Mm. The checkout girl started crying, you know, it was and I thought it's just a fan, <laughs> I've got 15 euros. And uh you know, and it was just a moment in the supermarket that that we then watched her carry the fan under her arm back into her flat. I thought that was the end of it. That night I was on the truck. And uh, and she she came. She responded at the front of the meeting, and uh, we prayed for her. The following night, a load of other people came along and said, "We've come to hear the American guy who bought the lady the fan." <laughs> and uh, and I said, "Well, I'm not an American, but it's probably me." Uh, and then a load of them came to Christ that evening as well. And and that particular evening, I was talking about the story of the woman at the well, and and I guess people listen to this most people will be familiar with that story uh that jesus encountered this lady having walked um uh, off peace to have this one-on-one -on -one encounter with her and as a result of that she goes into the town and says come and meet someone who told me everything i ever did and it just resonated with that story uh so it was her it was my encounter with her in the supermarket that led to all these other people coming who had heard the story um, and yeah, I mean, that for me is a story that I've recounted hundreds of times because it's just stuck with me as uh, a, an example of how God can use an encounter with one person to affect many others. Yeah, beautiful. Just for 15 euros, people. I mean, uh, yeah. we, can, we can do that. We can do that in the in Lidl or Aldi, paying the bill for someone behind us. I mean, you, you hear those stories, don't you? You just want you want to say, come on, it's it's not that difficult. Let's let's get more of those stories. All of us, we can have those stories, can't we? Definitely. How about in England? What's what been your highlights of ministry in England? Gosh, I mean, picking one or two, Simon, is is hard. But there was one guy we were in. It was with the bandwagon that I talked about a moment ago, the four trailers we got from Canada. Uh, we were in a, a town in Essex. And uh, there was a South African lad who was only in the town. He'd only been there a day. And he came into the truck, uh, into the venue, the, this under the tent. And uh, he came forward. I, I, He's one of those people that... I remember because his response was so dramatic. Uh, we came to the end of the meeting, I preached the gospel, I offered the response and uh, and invited people to come forward. And this guy just bolted out of his seat. He was on the top row um, of the tiered seating inside one of the trailers. And he came down into the grass and he, he stood in front of me, massive guy, you know, real kind of 
bodybuilder type guy and he, he was crying his eyes out and he just looked me in the eye uh, and I prayed for him and then he told me about his story and how he had been abandoned by his family uh he's he he's, he he'd found uh faith in South Africa but then he'd lost his way got involved in drugs and he he just basically run to the UK I can't remember the reason why he was there but but he encountered God and we baptized him in a in a in a wheelie bin uh about two <laughs> months later and uh, and I lost touch with him now his name was Leon um but that was an that was one of those real kind of raw outdoor uh you know wild conversion stories and and there's been lots of others I mean there was a guy I remember leading to Christ in Bognor um when we had the big trailer there and uh he came up to me at the end and uh, I'd I'd already prayed for him and he said can I can I join and I said well what do you mean do you, you know join the church and he said no I, I just want to be part of what you're doing he said I'll, I'll do anything you want me to do I'll I don't need to be paid I'll, I'll travel and you know and, and again I think sometimes when the gospel touches people in a non-religious environment yeah something wild can happen mm. you know people radically radically converted not just making a decision and then you know maybe signing up for an alpha course or whatever all of that's great but but on the street people saying i will leave everything and follow jesus mm. and and i've seen it and um you know one or two of those people have joined the team um one guy i know um who was a heroin addict um got radically saved converted worked with me for a number of years i was best man at his wedding um, so yeah, I mean, many stories, um, you know, that even talking about two of them like that, it just, others flash into my mind. So yeah, I mean, we've, we've reached, uh, many people outdoors all over, all over Europe. Yeah. Good to hear. You know, I think a lot of people listening will be asked oh, street preachers in general, you know, there are street preachers that give give people a bad name aren't they and they give the gospel even oh, a bad name you don't you, there's nothing worse than people actually being pushed further away because of people communicating badly um but there is a place isn't it for creativity for being out there i mean i found it just uh you know, yeah, over christmas time you know when we allowed out lockdown we got out in the streets and we just you know everyone likes carols don't they so it's just using <coughs> appropriate tools as and when so we just sang a yeah. carol then a quick message sang a carol quick message and I ended up talking to this brother-sister combination, Gwen and Zach. And, uh, you know, do you, do you get what this Christmas stuff is all about? And they're like, no, no. And they were just, you know, you shake the tree. Our friend Scott McNamara says you shake the tree and either the fruit falls and is ready or it doesn't. If it doesn't, there's no point forcing it. Just being mm. sensitive, isn't it? But it was lovely yeah, in this yeah. case, these two, they both said, yeah, we'd like to we'd like to join the family right now. And I'm praying for her, her particularly. She, she's like, as I prayed for her, she's like, whoa what's that going on my heart it's so <laughs> my heart is so hot and i said gwen never forget that for the rest of your life that is god wants yeah, meeting with you wanting yeah. you to know that you know that you know and she said i will never forget that and i think yeah. i think people are, are sort of very wary we're in the back foot 
on about foot in this country, aren't we? And and people, uh, we're fearful to be be confident of. Yeah. And we're not saying we're any better than anyone else. We are just better off, aren't we? Because we're free from guilt. We've got a we've got a new commissioning to for, for, for the future. We don't need to impress anyone where we know where we're going. We're secure in our status as as for, forgiven and and you know prince or princess. You know, child of the king, son, daughter of God. I mean, there's so many perks thrown in, aren't there? Being freed of guilt yeah. is a massive one. And and so yeah, I mean, I was, you, you talked earlier about, about making you know mistakes, getting things wrong. Um, give us some sort of cardinal funny blunders that you look back and think, oh no. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I I suppose I took I took very big steps and big decisions early on. Um, uh, I'm I live in Southampton, and there's a, there's a tough area uh, in Southampton, particularly that we were invited to do a large event at. Uh, we took the trucks in, um, and, and it just went badly wrong because we just hadn't done our homework. We hadn't engaged properly. Uh, we just rocked up, and uh, we got we got hit by the youth. Um, uh, about thirty of them uh, rocked up one night, trashed the venue. Uh, uh, we we made a nine 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 call to the police. Um, uh, eight times before they rocked up mm. um crowd dispersed and you know and in some ways i think you know people blamed the young people uh, for the trouble that they caused but i learned a massive lesson that night simon i realized that uh that that we were on their turf it was their patch and uh and we needed to have the, with the right to be there um so i now don't just turn up, particularly when we're doing large events. I don't just turn up to a place. We work very closely in partnership with churches. Yeah, that's good. Uh, we do our homework. Um, we make sure we know what we're going into. So, yeah, so that was one mistake that I learned. Um, it, it was a big mistake and we learned from it. But, you know, there have been others. I mean, I, I was doing an event um, at a place called Temple Newsom Park in Leeds, which is a big amphitheater. And we had an outdoor crowd of about a thousand people. And I was doing this illusion. Actually, Lorraine, my wife, was doing it with me. It was a, it was a packing case, like a substitution illusion, where one person goes in the box uh, in a sack in handcuffs. Some someone else stands on the top. The curtain goes up. And you switch places in three seconds. And uh, we we'd rehearsed it. We'd done this, but but I'm inside the box, and I've been fastened in these handcuffs, and I just couldn't get out of them. Uh, and I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. I could, I knew the moment was coming. The curtain was going up, and I knew I had to get out of the box. Uh, so I ended up standing on the box with these handcuffs hanging off my wrist, and and it and I felt like I completely messed it up. And of course, everyone was just laughing and whatever. But you know, we turned it around. You know, but there's been lots of times where. You know, tricks have gone wrong. I've tried to, you know, escape out of something and failed. I got stuck in a straitjacket in Manchester once and had to be let out of it. You know, <laughs> so there's a few, there's a few times where, you know, I've I've sort of set myself up as some hotshot escapologist and ended up looking like an idiot. But uh, hey, it's all uh, all all in the pursuit of the ultimate gag, as they say. That's right. And you know, we, well, we talked there of, of sort of comical mistakes but how about in yeah. 30 years of ministry in terms of you know lows uh you know sucker punches times of uh, feeling disillusioned can you yeah. can you speak into that a bit yeah there's been there has been seasons where 
Um, I've struggled massively. There was a time where um, in the early days of Miracle Street um, where we didn't have the money to support me um, and I was uh, I was traveling around um, uh, installing software. I, I met a guy who actually then helped me to buy the first um, stage vehicle. He bought it for me brand new. Um, but I did some installation work for him and I just, I was driving around the country doing stuff and listening to Billy Graham's um, autobiography in my car. Uh, and I just felt like the dream was just dying inside of me. Uh, it was a difficult um, season in my life. Um, and then, yeah, I came through that and, you know, and then really the beginning of the trucks all came as a result of that. So that was a particularly low time. I got caught in a church split, um, which again was extremely painful. Um, ended up relocating into a different town in a different network. So, yeah, I mean, I've tried to I've tried to be faithful to what I understood as the call of God on my life, um, but it's not always been easy. And you know, others I'm sure will share that sentiment that you know, you hit blocks in the road and you have to decide whether you want to give up or whether you're going to carry on. And um, and for me, you know, it's been pretty much 34 years unbroken, um, uh, but there have definitely been uh, uh, bumps in the road for mm. me. 34 years, I mean, that is beautiful. And, you know, in the meantime, almost every week you hear of high-profile leaders making spectacular cock-ups, you know, yeah. literally sometimes. And it's like, oh... You know, what, what would you say has been your recipe for staying grounded and, and keeping faithful to the vision? I think having a, having a, a, the right understanding of who I am, um, I, I've always been fairly, um, you know, almost self-deprecating because I, it's not that I feel that I'm worthless, but I, I feel like I, I've lived the dream. I, I feel like, you know, God offered me something and I... I said yes to it, um, and it's yeah. I feel quite emotional talking about it, um, but uh, I never believed that I was I was worthy of what God offered me. Um, so I've tried to live, you know, I've tried to shape my life around the sense of the enormous gratitude that I have for God to to God for the way that He saved my life, and I do what I do because I'm grateful, not because I feel that I deserve it. Um, and I think you know humility is 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 an essential ingredient for all of us. Um, I I I think God has kept me humble. Um, some of the things that I've faced, I think, have been God's way of of making sure that I I I didn't get too ahead of myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know I I know what I should have been, and I'm not that because of the grace of God. Mm. Uh, so you know that every day I get up and I'm thankful. That's John Newton, wasn't it? He said, uh, "What is it? I'm trying to remember. I'm, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I was, and I am yeah. what I am." Yeah, <laughs> good old John yeah. Newton. And I'm yeah, guessing uh, to to join you in answering that question is that you've got Lorraine, I've got Lizzie. They are yeah. our our loyalist, staunchest allies yeah. and fiercest yeah. critics, yeah. and they keep our feet on the ground. Don't let us get away with with nonsense. Yeah. Uh, so grateful to have, um, yeah, 
our lives behind us, supporting yeah, us to the build. And then further people, presumably you've got other guys that are just stuck behind you. That you got have you got people that ask you the tough questions that don't take any BS. That's like you know keep your feet keep you grounded. Yeah, yeah, I, I I have, and and you know a lot of them are trustees of the charity. Um, people that have walked with me. Um, I mean, Gary Stupple is is mm -hmm. a great friend of mine Good who buddy. is a great friend of yours as well. Um, so he's like a lieutenant for me. Um, you know, he, he, he asks me those questions. He, you know, he doesn't let me get too, you know, ahead of myself or up in myself. Um, and there are others. So I'm, I'm grateful for my friends. Um, years ago, I felt God say to me, you'll build my kingdom with your friends. Mm. And that's been my journey. It's been my story. Um, very, very faithful friends that have stuck with me and, uh, stuck, stuck with me yeah, and yeah. Have, have walked the journey by my side and could have done it on their own, could have had their own, um, you know, ministries in that sense, but, but, but worked, worked with me and mm. chose to do that. Yeah. I mean, one of my life mantras is everything is relationship. And uh, you've looked at that as well, haven't you, in terms of if you get good people around. You don't actually need to know where you're going if you've got good people around you, because it's just going to be good, isn't it? Yeah. People yeah. got vision and faith and, and Lord, Lord, you can just direct our paths. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you've done loads of face-to-face -face over three decades plus. But wouldn't you say that actually... Uh, the effect is, the effect of the effectiveness of your work has multiplied in the last few years because you've been innovative and an early adopter and entrepreneurial in terms of using media. We're coming into land in the last few minutes, but uh, share a bit on that. In terms of online and digital, yeah. yeah. Well, obviously the lockdown has pushed us all in that direction, but I was very grateful to God to be three years into a, an online journey. Um, I, I started with Gary's help that I mentioned a moment ago. I started doing this thing called Big Story, which are five-minute gospel presentations online, often in an historical or even iconic location. I'm very into history. I have a lot of, um, you know, a lot of back catalogue of historical stories that I use to illustrate the gospel. So we, we have, they have literally gone across the world. Um, I, I've got a background in World War II history, um, so we've told a lot of those stories and, and used them to illustrate the gospel. I also do something called God in 60 Seconds. Uh, we do two a week, uh, so they're one minute, obviously, uh, as the name would suggest. Hmm. Uh, presentations of the gospel as well. I try to be very clear, very direct uh, with all the things that I'm doing. Um, I did an alpha course in my car called In Car Alpha last summer. And uh, and I'm also now doing um, a series of evangelistic presentations. I did one called Fire Pit, which was six fire stories from the Bible. And I'm now doing one called Watershed. Uh, and they're all going to sit under a thing called Elements. Um, so do, making loads of film all the time, but also um, speaking into churches. Um, I was live with the leadership team last night. Um, so yeah, I'm doing loads online, um, but I think this this for me is the great challenge. I, I I think online is about content. It's not about church. I'm not sure online church exists. I think it's almost like a misnomer because the incarnation is stripped away from it. The mm. word became flesh. I think we've got to get the face-to-face -face thing. Um, are right at the centre of what we are doing. I'm not sure you can disciple someone online, um, but the online platforms obviously are 
are great and brilliant and we've certainly, I mean, some of our big stories have been watched over a million times. Um, so, you know, we've had a huge reach, but but I'm very, I'm very sobered by the limitations of it. Mm, that's very interesting because even this podcast will, can add to someone's discipleship journey. It could be uplifting. That's what we're aiming it to, for it to be. But it's, yeah. there's no substitute people we need to meet together in, in small groups, in relationship, face to face. And let's get back to that as soon yeah. as possible. Uh, listen, mm. any, any sort of last words? I mean, just mention exactly where people can get in touch with you. But is there anything we've forgotten that you'd really like us to have covered? Yeah, I mean, there was a story um, which I, I I didn't say earlier on, which I think has been very important for me, and I'd love to leave this with um, the folks who are listening to this. Just to say miraclestreet.com is where uh, people can find me. It's all there, all the videos, all the links are there as well. But the story's this. Um, Gerald, Gerald Coates, um, who pe some people will know, he picked me out in an audience when I was 25. And, uh, and he, he stood me in front of this, this, this church, that I, well, the church I was in. And he said to me this, he said, I see the number nine over you. Something happened to you when you were nine years old. And I just, I just went pop. When he, when he said that, because when I was nine, what had happened is that my father, uh, my mum had found out that my father had been having an affair since I was about one years old, one year old. And my sister and I, my sister's 18 months older than me, we stood on the top stair of our house and we listened to this horrendous argument between my parents. And I remember something happening to me um, which caused me to shut down at that time. And Gerald prophesied this over me. He said, something happened to you at the age of nine. And he said, uh, an internal loss took place. And he said that, that God took hold of you at that, at that moment. And the internal loss that you felt will lead you to touch thousands of lives. And, and the reason why I tell that story is because I, I think it is so important that we recognize that our journey and sometimes sometimes the hard bits of our journey uh, are, are, are able to be redeemed by God and often are the very things that shape what we become. And that has been so true for me. And I think the, the empathy that I have for the people who are pushed around, the people who are the back of the queue, I think comes from um, some of the rejection that I felt, particularly through that period in my life. Uh, so there's, it's not easy to go through those times, but, um, and I'm, and I'm not saying they come from God, but God absolutely uses them. Well, well, listen, that's a, a heavy, but precious note to end on Steve. Um, so thank you very much for being with us. We're going to say goodbye now. Really appreciate the conversation this morning, Simon. Love you to talk to you. Brilliant. Okay, folks. Well, that was inspired by Simon Gilbert. This week is with Steve Lee of Miracle Street. Do check that out. And Steve, bless your family, bless the ministry. And uh, yeah, we look forward to see where God takes you in the next 34 years or however long he's got for us. <laughs> is, that, is that too long? I mean, you don't want to be around in 34 years, do you? Oh, I hope so. I'm only 56. Okay. All right. So that's at 90. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go with that. I'll go with 90. Okay. All right. Well, see you guys, everybody. See you next week. Toodaloo. See ya.